0: Welcome to New Philly Hongdae. Last week we just started a three-part mini-series and it was titled Restoring First Love. It is in response to a word that we feel like the Lord is taking our church community through. Now, for those who are type A personality, those who need a roadmap, like tell me exactly what it is that this three-part series is about. Here it is. So the first week, which was last week, we talked about this letter written to the uh, the church of Ephesus in the book of Revelation. And it is a word of encouragement and yet also a word of rebuke from Jesus to this particular local church. And we realize that, yes, it is a prophetic word for us right now. It is a word that has big implications for our community. And as hard as we might try, we cannot try to love God if we are not receiving love from him first. So we are only able to love as much as we receive love from him. And so we cannot tackle this thing just on good intentions, good self-discipline, Good, whatever. Like it has to be the Spirit of God opening up our eyes to the revelation that Christ has given everything for His church, and we as God's people have no lack. We have no insecurity. We have no fear. All these things are kind of washed away in God's absolute, perfect love. And that's a place that we need to start. Now, today we'll be talking about our response to this revelation. So it's not just, okay, just to receive. This calls for action. This calls for response. And there's an invitation that God is giving us right now as a community, as a church, that we need to respond to. And that's what we'll be talking about today. And the next week, we'll take some time to look at the reward of all this. The reward at the end of all this you know, give and take, all this revelation, all this commitment. We'll talk about the the re, um, reward that comes at the end of all this and what kind of church God is actually after. We're going to take a little bit of time to dream together as a community next week. What is it that we're headed to? For someone like me, I really need to understand that. As long as the destination is worthwhile to me, I'm pretty much willing to go through whatever. Like, whatever inconvenience, whatever readjustment, whatever it is that needs to happen on the way, as long as I know that the destination is worthwhile, then I'm willing to do it. But if I feel like, you know, I don't know if it's going to, you know, whatever, if it's going to pay off or whatever, then it's really hard for me to be steadfast, to be committed along the way. So, as I said, this is a moment of decision for a church, and our response in this season will set the trajectory for this community in the days to come, because God is taking us somewhere and we can't just jump into this full steam ahead without God first setting a trajectory for us. Otherwise we will be going full steam ahead in the wrong direction, right? And that's the last thing that we want. We want our hearts to be positioned in humility and repentance and recommitment and watch the Lord himself build a church that is mighty, that is wholehearted, that is fully devoted to following him wherever it is that he leads. And so this prophetic warning, it comes from the book of Revelation. Uh, we read this last week, um, and we're going to actually walk through it together one more time. It reads that angel of the church in Ephesus right? These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. This is a letter addressed by Jesus to one of the most successful, most affluent, most influential churches in the ancient times. And this is a church of Ephesus. And this is what he has to say to them. He says, I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men. That you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. So they're really good at doctrine, right? You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. And they're persevering. And this is the one thing that he holds against them. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. And this is the response that he's after. First thing is Remember. Don't move on so quickly. Don't slap on a Band-Aid solution on this deeply embedded, almost like cancer that's infiltrated the body of Christ. You need to take time to remember the heart posture, the surrender, the wholehearted abandon you once served the Lord with. When it wasn't about your church, when it wasn't about your reputation, it wasn't about your title, your position, what people thought about you. It wasn't about fulfilling requirements of looking like you're playing a good part of a Christian. It was actually about loving the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. It was about pouring out in service and worship and giving and being genuine about your gratitude and your humility. That is the first place. That we need to camp at. We first have to remember. We cannot just say okay. Okay so give me the fix. What is it that you want me to fix? First of all you have to take a moment. Almost like to grieve. To grieve how far you've fallen. You have to take a moment. To soberly assess. Where it was that you once were. And where it is that you once, that, that you are right now. And then from that place. You need to repent. Now repentance. Isn't just about acknowledging your wrongs, but it's about changing direction, about turning away from things that are leading you down the path of destruction and actually making a 180 and turning now to greater things that will lead you to sanctification, to deeper love, greater depth in understanding and trust. So this is a really, really important point for us to just take a moment to really hone in on because sometimes we think that repentance is just looking at your sin and being like i'm really sorry about that that was terrible of me and you just stay there and look at your sin and you're still facing in the wrong direction you're like okay this time i'll try i'll try to not do it again and you're still facing the right in the wrong direction repentance is about acknowledging what you've done wrong and now turning to things that will lead you away from the path of destruction. Now facing the Lord, the things that will lead you in greater sanctification. Sanctification is a process that the Holy Spirit works in us to make us more and more like Christ. So it's not just about avoiding wrongdoings. It's not about not doing certain things, but it's about starting to do good things that will lead you away from the path of destruction. This is really important because sometimes when we think about sin, Sometimes when we think about, okay, what is the enemy of everything that is good, right? What is the enemy of this whole road? It's not just what's bad, but actually sometimes the greatest enemy of this is what is good enough, right? You're like still facing this way, but you're like, it's technically not sin yet. Just one step closer here. Well, this is kind of like I've seen my Christian friends can do this too one step closer and you begin compromising and you're still walking down this road of destruction. Sometimes you feel like, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of like far enough, like better enough or above the curve or whatever. Um, but you're still facing in the wrong direction. Like wanting to walk in the path of righteousness is not about just help me not do wrong, but asking the Holy spirit, help me do good. Help me do things and pursue things and long for things and desire for things. That will draw me closer to you. Not just let me avoid all this really bad stuff that has bad repercussions. It's about, I want to be closer to you, God. I want to be further from sin. I'm going to be closer to you. And there's only one way to do that. That's not just acknowledging what you've done wrong. It's about turning in the opposite direction and beginning to walk towards the Lord. And that is what repentance is. It's not just acknowledgement. It's a turning. It's a turning, a 180 turning towards the Lord. And then he ends this letter to the Ephesians saying, he who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches, to him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now we just looked at, okay, you need to remember what he did at first, right? So today we're going to take a moment to see actually what they did at first right? Fortunately for us, it is recorded in the book of Acts. So we see how the Ephesian church was actually birthed in the book of Acts. Um, it, it starts in Acts 19 verses 13 to 20. And it reads some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits. They tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who are demon possessed. So they would say, in the name of the Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva a Jewish priest were doing this. So these are people who actually don't believe in Jesus, but they're like, this is the, hocus, the magical hocus pocus kind of incantation that seems to drive out evil spirits. So I'm going to give this a shot. They don't really believe in Jesus. They're not followers of Jesus. They're not really repentant. They're not really walking in the Lord. But they're like, this seems to work. Like there's a magical word, and it is the name of Jesus. Let's try it. And it seems to work for a while, right? And these are seven sons of Eskiva, a Jewish priest. And this is what happens one day. The evil spirit actually answered them and he said, he, she, I I don't know. Jesus, uh, Jesus, I know. And Paul, I know about, but who are you? I would freak out if this happened to me, right? Who are you? Like I know about these people, but who in the world are you? (laughs) It means that you have zero spiritual authority when it comes to this. You have no stake in this. Who are you to use the name of Jesus in this way? And then this is what happens. Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. This one evil spirit beat the pants off of seven grown men. Now, that's a big deal. It's a big deal, right? So this evil spirit overpowered seven dudes. And so this is what happened in response. Like any crazy happening would have it. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, so both Greeks and Gentiles heard about this, they were all seized with fear and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believe now came and openly confess what they had done. So the first thing that happened actually is that they were seized with fear. Now, what is the fear of the Lord? This is something that we often don't really think about very much. And there's a great deal written in the Bible about the fear of the Lord. There's hundreds of verses on this, but we'll work through a few of them very, very quickly. This is the first example of it in Proverbs 9, 10. It says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. In Psalms 25, verse 12, it says, who then is the man who fears the Lord? He will instruct him in the way chosen for him. Back to Proverbs chapter 28, verse 14, it says, Blessed is the man who always fears the Lord, but he who hardens his heart falls into trouble. Proverbs 28, it likens someone who fears the Lord then as someone who hasn't hardened his heart to the Lord. It means there's a teachability, there's a pliability, a moldable disposition of the heart, When it comes to the Lord, where pride hasn't settled in, arrogance hasn't settled in, stubbornness hasn't settled in, bitterness hasn't settled in, but your heart is still tender towards the Lord. And that's what fear of the Lord will do to you. This is the fourth example from Ecclesiastes chapter 8. It says, although a wicked man commits a hundred crimes and still lives a long time. So this is talking about an injustice, right? I know that it will go better with God-fearing men who are reverent before God. It is a reverence before God, no matter what the result. Even when you look around you and you see evil men taking all the shortcuts, doing all the things that are not integrous, and still seem, they still seem to be getting their way. They're not following the Lord in any way. And they still seem to be getting ahead in life. And those who follow the Lord, you'll feel cheated. You're like, well, then what is this about? You know, like I'm here trying to do right by God. And all these people who don't seem to care, they seem to be getting ahead in life. They seem to be getting ahead in their career. They seem to be getting ahead in their love life. They seem to be getting ahead in all these different aspects. And it feels like I'm missing out by following the Lord. There's a sense of loss. There's a sense of comparison. There's a sense of, man, do I really need to do this? Is is this really what it's about? Is is this really worthwhile? But the Bible says, in the long run, those who fear God and are reverent before him are the ones who will come out on top. Sometimes we don't see it right now. Sometimes it'll take years to actually see the results. Sometimes it'll be an eternity to come that we actually see what the fruit of that was. But in the waiting and in the meantime, the Bible exhorts us, don't give up. Don't give up in fearing God. It's going to pay off. Sometimes you just don't see it immediately. Now, this is the final example I have for you from Luke 150. This is from the song of Mary, who's Jesus' mother, that she sings the song To her cousin Elizabeth, who has just confirmed, like, yes, you're carrying the Messiah in your womb right now. Um, And so as a response, Mary sings a song and she says his mercies extend to those who fear him from generation to generation. So this is Mary saying that after generations and generations of waiting for the Messiah, the hope of Israel, the salvation of the world, God has moved in response to those who fear him. And he is actually answered by giving himself, by sacrificing himself as a sign of his mercy and love from generation to generation. So if we go back to Acts 19, this is a God to be reckoned with. Although he's patient and long suffering, he's not a pushover. Although he's merciful, he's also just. Although he's forgiving and gracious, he is also holy. One word from his mouth and an entire nation can shake one snap of his fingers and galaxies can implode one thought, one move, he can do whatever he wants. This is the kind of God that we worship. Now, if we lack the fear of the Lord, what that does to us is it makes us begin to take him for granted have you Do you have this friend like oh, okay I'm, uh do you have this friend who's like continuously late right to to every meetup that you have, right? They're always late. Like, it doesn't matter what time you set to meet. Like, they're always late. All of you guys are like, that's you, man. (laughs) Right? (laughs) But, yeah, you you have this friend who's always late. Right? In the beginning, you're like, okay, okay, I'm not going to say anything. I'm just going to let it slide. I'm a gracious person. I'm a forgiving person. We're here to have fun anyway. I'm not going to make a big deal out of it. But what happens with the 20th time? 20th time, you're like, okay, something's wrong here right? Something's wrong here. You really don't respect my time. Like you really don't take me seriously. You don't feel like I have better things to do in my life with my time than to wait here for you for 20, 30 minutes. If you're on the other side, right? You, if you're the irreverent one, right? Right. You're like the first year testing the waters. You're like, eh, I'm going to show up like five minutes late. Yeah, I'm going to sit here and eat a little bit more. And then maybe I'll go out and then I'll be 15 minutes late, but that's okay. It's still like, It's still acceptable. Fifteen is still acceptable. When they let you off the hook for 20 times, you're like, you don't even care about getting there on time anymore, right? So you've lost kind of like not the fear of the Lord, not the fear of your friend, but you know, like, (laughs) you know, like you take them for granted. You're like, they're not gonna say anything. They don't seem to mind anyway. They're not making a big deal out of it anyway, right? It's something very similar, right, that happens with the Lord sometimes. We're like, Lord, it's gonna sin just a little bit right? It's just a little bit. He doesn't seem to mind. It's like the other person seems to get away with it. So I'm just going to sin just a little bit. And he doesn't seem to strike me with lightning this time around. So, okay, let's test, you know, a little bit more and then a little bit more. And we begin to lose the fear of the Lord, the sense of reverence that God is a force to be reckoned with that God, just because he's merciful, it doesn't mean that he's unholy. He still deserves your respect. He still deserves your devotion He still deserves all those things. And just because you're getting off the hook, it doesn't mean that it's right. So that is what we're talking about when we talk about the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is something that will guard your life and keep you on the right path. The moment you begin to be like, well, well, the word of God has said this, but that's the moment you begin to compromise. That's That's a moment where you begin to lose your fear of the Lord. And if the fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom and understanding, then it means that you're in the beginnings of foolishness, right? You're walking down the path of foolishness, the moment that you forget to fear the Lord. So when this whole thing happened with the sons of Sceva, like people were like, oh, okay, this is an actual God, right? It's actual powers, there's actual demons that understand who this, this man Jesus is, and you can't really take it lightly anymore. You can't be like, ooh, in the name of Jesus, I'm going to try this, I'm going to see if it has. It's not a game anymore. It's like the name of Jesus is actually to be revered. It's actually a name that is holy. So what happened in response to that is the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Now, this is something that I feel like our generation, we need to learn about. And it is about reverence, sacredness, set-apartedness, if that is a word. Where you doesn't, don't just like toss around his name. You don't just adhere to this when it's convenient to you. You don't assume that his patience is license for your sin. When you don't assume that his kindness is license for your irreverence, where you actually take his word seriously. That is what it means to hold the name of the Lord Jesus in high honor. Where it's not just something that you throw around when it's appropriate or what's convenient, but you actually revere the name of Jesus. You realize that there's actual Power in the name of Jesus, that demons actually bow to this God, Jesus. So that's what happened in response to what happened with the sons of Sceva. The name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. And when you've begun to understand that the Lord is someone to be reckoned with, that he sees all, that he knows all, and there's nowhere to hide, From his spirit, there's nowhere to flee from his presence, that he can see you to the depths. He can understand you better than you can actually understand yourself. This leads you to realize that he's a God that cannot coexist with compromise and mixture. And in humility and trust and brokenness, you come to the place of confession. Confession, not just like, I'm really sorry about that, but it's like, I am really sorry about that. I can't believe I just did that. I can't believe I grieved your heart. I can't believe I marred your name. I can't believe I was untrue to what I said to you. I can't believe I didn't follow your word. There's actual confess, confession, repentance of the heart. What this means when you openly confess what you have done, it means that you've swallowed your pride. It means that you've let go of your reputation. Something's more important, greater at stake than your reputation, and that is your blamelessness before God. The fear of the Lord trumps the fear of judgment from people around you, and it makes you keep your sins a secret matter. It makes it a moot point. Like you can no longer just keep this to yourself. You have to get right with the Lord, and you will do whatever it takes, even if it means marring my name in front of everybody even if it means like people look at me differently, even if it means like I don't get to uphold my reputation the way that I thought I wanted. It means that something more important has come and that you need to make amends with the Lord. Now, this is this aspect of confession this is something that we've kind of lost along the way, especially in modern Christianity, when we're very much about like, let's present ourselves kind of like put together, right? Like there's people out there who's want, who are watching. There's people in here who are watching who are sometimes worse than people out there. And, you know, like you want to, you want to look the part. You want to make sure that people don't think that you're one of the struggling ones or you're the ones who are like going through stuff. You want to be like pretty well put together. You want to look like you have it together. But if we look at the history of the church and the history of many revivals across nations, it doesn't matter where it was, many of those revivals weren't sparked by preaching. They weren't sparked by evangelism. They were actually marked by public confession of sins from pastors, from missionaries, from elders, deacons, leaders of the church, people that you would think they should know better. They should have it all together. If anybody has it all together here, it should be them. Like those kind of people, they finally got gripped with the fear of the Lord, where they had to come and publicly confess their sin. These are people who had the most to lose, probably, and yet they put their reputation down, they put their pride down, and openly confessed their sins before God's people. God saw their brokenness, how they held in higher esteem the holiness of God than the reputation of man, and he blessed it with the outpouring of his spirit. That's how even the 1907 revival happened in Pyongyang a little over 100 years ago. It started, it was sparked by the public confession of sin. And sometimes I wonder if that's what it will take for revival to hit this nation once again. But we come to the point where we don't need to save face anymore because there are bigger things at stake here. We don't want to keep up the pretense. We don't want to look like we have it all together when we are broken in the soul, when we are in deep need of God's mercy. Like, all that becomes a show. It becomes almost, like, absurd to keep playing this game when you have a reckoning with the Lord to take care of. And so this is what happened with the church of Ephesus. Once they were gripped with the fear of the Lord, they came and openly confessed what they had done. But it didn't stop there. It isn't just a verbal acknowledgement of what they had done because that isn't full repentance. That's simply just the first step. Now that they confessed with their mouths their sin, then they testified through their actions, their turning. And this is what they did. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. So the first thing they did is they brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. Now this is... Touching on something that we rarely talk about, even at church, and that is a sense of consecration and purification, where it's not like you are halfway, like, obedient. You're, like, keeping things around just in case you change your mind, like there's a plan B, there's a back door open just in case, but you're, like, all in. Whatever it was that I was worshiping before this Lord, whatever it was, I'm bringing it and I'm going to publicly destroy it, publicly burn it. There, it wasn't like a half-hearted, lukewarm act of repentance. It was a very radical act of repentance. It, it, they were all in. 50,000 drachmas is actually, if you were to calculate it today, it's anywhere between $5.5 million to $1.5 billion, somewhere in between there. It's a big range, I know. But <laughs> it's, it's basically, the, the point is, it's a lot of money. It was a very costly Act of repentance. It wasn't like, I don't really wanted the scroll anyway. Fine, toss it. No, this was their most prized possession. This was their object of worship. This was probably the most expensive thing that they owned. And that is what they brought before the Lord. And they burned it. And they remembered where they had fallen from. They softened their hearts towards God. They revered him once again and turned to him. And then they paid the costly price of consecration and purification. Let me tell you, consecration and purification is never, never, never going to be convenient. It's never going to be convenient. It's never going to be like, oh, you know what? Out of all these choices, this is the most logical choice. It's never going to be that. It's always going to be costly. You're always going to have to say no to something in order to say yes to something else. That is what consecration is. You're setting yourself apart. You're setting yourself away from different things that will take away from your wholeheartedness. And it is costly. It's probably not going to be a popular choice. It's probably going to be misunderstood by people around you, whether it be your friends, your family, your peers, your coworkers. It doesn't really matter. It's going to not make sense to the world, and that's the point, right? That's the point. It's not supposed to make sense. And it's going to be very, very very inconvenient. I'm sure when people were throwing in their scrolls into this massive bonfire, that's how I imagine it, right? In the, in the town kind of square, they have this massive bonfire, and they're just throwing the scrolls in. People would be like, well, dude, what are you doing? You know how much, how much that's worth? That's $50,000 right there. You're holding in your hand, and you just toss. Like, I, I would try to save it or, or something, right? But it's like a lot of money burning in the middle, and you feel like, oh, man, that's such a loss. But when you think about it from God's perspective, it's not a loss. This is... Your act of consecration, purification, you're doing whatever it takes to get right before the Lord. Even if it means that you're losing a ton of money. Even if it means that you're going to get misunderstood by people around you. And that is what they did. Such was their desire to turn and repent before the Lord. They weren't being half-hearted about this. They weren't being lukewarm and compromising about this. They were all in. When you burn something, you can't unburn it, right? It's gone forever. Forever, right? And that is what they're doing with things that would keep them away from God. And so in response to this grand act of faith, this is what happened. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. This is the fame of Jesus being trumpeted by people who were once sorcerers. And the name of Jesus is being made famous and exalted in a city that was once pagan. It means it bankrupted a $5.5 million to $1.5 billion industry in a day. It means that the entire city had to hear about this Jesus that they were talking about. And isn't this what we want, right? Isn't this what we're after? To see the word of God spread widely, to see it grow in power, to see people released from bondage and hopelessness, to see the beautiful miracle of the power of Jesus Christ at work in someone's life? Don't we want that in our, in our lives, in our community, in our church, in our coworkers, in our workplaces? Isn't that what we want? And that is what it means to return to your first love. It doesn't just mean acknowledging what you've done wrong. It doesn't just mean remembering what you've fallen from. But actually acting out and stepping out in your repentance in a way that might be costly. And it's going to be very inconvenient, but that's what it takes, and that's what you do. That's what it means to return to your first love. So with this in mind, I want to close today with the following very, very uncomfortable question for our community. And this is the question, what does it look like for me to burn the scrolls today? What does it look like? What is that scroll that God is asking you to give up and burn? Like no turning back, just throw it into the fire. You won't miss it. What is a costly, inconvenient, radical act of repentance that God is calling us to today? Because we can talk about returning to our first love all we want. We can talk about until we're blue in the face, right? But it's just going to be talk until we actually respond in action as well. If we don't truly repent, we can dream up of all these things that we want to see God do in our lives and do in our ministry and do in our families. We can dream up of all these things, but if we don't truly repent, if we don't truly turn away from our own ways and our own plans, then none of it means anything. We can just say, return to your first love, return to your first love, return to your first love. We can say it over and over again. It's going to mean nothing unless you actually respond to it. And I will say this very cautiously and carefully, but I will say this, whatever dictates your emotions, whatever has a power to sway your decisions, whatever determines your attitude, whatever determines your direction, whatever that is, that is your object of worship. Sometimes we can say, we follow the Lord. We follow his word. We can say that all we want, but in actuality, practically speaking, our lives are testifying of worship. It just depends on who it is that we're worshiping. If when you're making decisions, the deciding factor is it's going to be money. It's going to be fear of man, someone else's expectations over my life. It's going to be what will others think of me? If it is what is actually more comfortable for me right now, if it's that, then that is what it is that you are worshiping. You can worship the Lord with your mouth, but your life testifies of something else. And so I'm not saying this to be like super hardcore and really, you know, whatever. It's because it's true. Like we can, we can gather every Sunday together here and lift up the name of Jesus and sing all these songs. But if our lives outside of this room don't testify that that is actually true, that you actually are living out those lyrics that you sang that Sunday then all of this is really nothing. It really amounts to nothing. It's just another ritual that you add to your to-do list. So I'm saying this cautiously, but I'm still saying it. We will always wrestle with what is our flesh and what is God's will. We're always going to wrestle with that. All I'm trying to say is you need to let God have the final say. That is all it is. It's going to be a journey. Yes, we're going to make the wrong decisions all the time. Yes, but our heart posture has to be, I want to let God have the final say in this, whatever that is. The decision to turn away from idols has to be exactly that. It's a decision. It's not going to happen to you. You're not going to feel it emotionally before. Maybe sometimes you do, but it's actually going to be a decision. And There's going to be days when God doesn't look more desirable than the world where falling. God doesn't look more popular or, or whatever, more fun. There's going to be days where you feel like you're missing out on a life that the world gets to live apart from God. They look like they're having fun. And you see evil men getting ahead by cutting corners and compromising their integrity. And you'll be tempted to be led by our emotions and not the unchanging truth of the word of God. And in those moments, I pray that we wouldn't give up the fight, but ask God for the grace and the power to live this life rightly before him, because his opinion is all that matters. At the end of the day, it's not going to matter what your parents thought. It's very important what your parents think, but it's not going to matter ultimately if that means straying away from what the Lord is calling you to do. What your coworkers, what your Instagram followers, whatever, like you can fill in the blank there. At the end of the day, it's not going to matter. The only person whose opinion matters is God's. He is going to have the ultimate say in your life. And he is a person that you're going to have to bear account to. So let me ask you, what determines your actions and your decisions? Is it comfort? Is it the American dream? Is it safety? Is it family? Is it romance? Is it the opinion of others? It doesn't matter. Even if it's a good thing, like family, it's a great thing. But you were not designed to worship family. If you live a life that worships family, you are going to destroy this family because it will not deliver what only God can deliver. And it's also going to crush your soul in the process. You're meant to enjoy family under the lordship of Christ. It needs to be a second and a far second at that. Family is good. Success, influence, excellence, all those things are great. Career, even calling, those things are great. But if those things are more important than actually worshiping God, then there's a problem. It can be a holy thing, a Christian thing. But if it's not God, then it's still an idol. It can be ministry. It can be a church name. That is still idolatry in the eyes of God. When push comes to shove, and when you need to make a decision, It needs to be the Lord winning every time. Your idols, it will not deliver. It will not satisfy your deepest desires. You were designed to be satisfied fully in God and everything else under that. So my question for our community today is, what if God is asking us not just to lay down these idols in our hearts, but actually figuratively burn them? Like, no turning back. Like, there's no take backs after this. Like, you burn it. You don't just go halfway. You don't need the back door open. You don't leave a plan B just in case. But you take God on his word that he will deliver, that he will satisfy. He will outlast the wearing down of time, and he will not disappoint. You take God on his word. In many ways, I feel like this season, God is sweeping through the church and it's like he's you know that scene where jesus clears out the temple where everything that yes it was there to facilitate worship but it became an idol in itself it became an industry in itself it became a money-making machine Um, uh, and you know god became a means to an end like i get to make money off of all of this and jesus in his holy wrath He went through the temple and actually began to fling tables, turn them upside down. He began to drive out people who were there making a profit in the name of the Lord. Everything that was unholy that was on holy ground, he cast out. And in many ways, I feel like that is one of the things that God is doing in this season for a church. It means that we're going to have to take a long, hard look at what we have, both corporately and also individually. There's going to be things that need to be driven out. There's things that don't belong there. There's things that have no place there where God is being worshipped. And it takes people who are convinced of God's goodness, won over by his compassion, and committed to act upon what God is calling us to this season to see this restoration of first love. And let me tell you, he is so worth it. He is so worth it. There's nothing that I've given up ever that I've regretted for the Lord. Nothing. There's nothing that I'm like, ah, I shouldn't have gone all in. Maybe that was too far. Maybe that was too much. There's nothing that I've given up for the Lord that I've regretted. Everything, everything has been precious in his sight and everything he has counted, everything he has seen, everything he has honored, and everything he he has rewarded. And there's no better reward than God himself. That is what we'll get at the end of this. We won't get our scrolls. We won't get our idols. We don't get our way, our plans, whatever. But we get God at the end of it. And that is the ultimate reward. Let's pray.